traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine has entered its fifth month, and it shows no sign of drawing to a close. The focus and fury of Russian attacks is firmly on the east of the country. This month, Russia captured Luhansk after Ukrainian forces withdrew from the city of Lysyshansk, the last remaining stronghold in the eastern region. In a video address, Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky vowed solemnly to win back the land. While in Moscow, Russia's President Vladimir Putin declared it a victory and commanded his troops to increase their combat capabilities. When the conflict began, the West worried that the Ukrainian army would be crushed by Russia's superior firepower. But as Putin digs in his heels and Ukrainian resistance holds, that fear has shifted into which side can stand their ground for the oncoming war of attrition. The West is sending in more sophisticated weaponry. NATO is readying its forces for more assertive forward defence. Fresh battle plans are being drawn up. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, how is the Ukraine conflict changing warfare? My guest is considering how a long war with Russia can be won and what lessons can be learned for future conflicts. Admiral Satoni Radikin is Britain's chief of the defence staff and the country's most senior military official. He's the first naval officer to hold the job in nearly 20 years, a recognition that Britain's defence strategy is gazing across the seas as well as the land. We recorded this interview with Admiral Radikin just a few days before Boris Johnson announced that he'd be stepping down as Britain's Prime Minister, and also before the UK's armed forces faced allegations that its SAS troops unlawfully killed 54 people in Afghanistan. On the home front, Admiral Radikin faces a tussle. Defence budgets and recruitment are under strain when more is being demanded of the armed forces. Admiral Satoni Radikin, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you, Anne. It's a delight to be here. And also joining me is Shashank Joshi, The Economist Defence Editor. Hi there, Shashank. Hello, Anne. Thanks very much for having me. And uh, hello, Admiral Tony. The war in Ukraine has entered its fifth month. How would you assess the state of the conflict? I think at the strategic level, I really do subscribe to this is a catastrophic mistake by Russia. And the evidence for that is that the original objectives by President Putin have not been met and will not be met. They will not take control of Ukraine. They haven't created the fissures within Europe and NATO 
and the economic position, the diplomatic position, I would argue the military position of Russia is a diminished one. I think at the operational and tactical level, unsurprisingly, it's more fierce and it's more balanced. And at the operational level, I think you're seeing the pressures on both sides. How can both sides keep the fight going at the intensity that they want? How can they organize the war so that they gain the upper hand? And then at the tactical level, you're seeing Russia making modest gains, one, two, three kilometers a day, at an extraordinary cost. And at one level, that might be physical gain of territory. And at another level, it might be, if you come up at the operational level, it may be very questionable as to whether those gains merit the amount of combat effectiveness that Russia is losing for those small territorial gains. And yet it feels relentless. It may not make sense from the Russian perspective or your analysis of it, but if Russia is determined and is relentless, do you understand the creeping concern that this is going to go on a very long time, but also that Russia may not give up? I think we should be wary of it feels relentless. I think the really significant piece as we try to take stock in a much more fundamental way is that this is the end of the post-Cold War era. This is a manifestation of Russia's aggression and behavior, which when we look back over the last 20 years, probably is unsurprising. What this signifies when you take into account Georgia, Chechnya, Syria, Crimea in 2014 is a challenge by Russia against the world order and their use of the military instrument to achieve their policy and political objectives. And going forwards, I'm afraid that that Russia identity and values and challenge to the world order is going to endure. So if that applies to Ukraine as well, you're describing an attritional campaign, a Russia that is in it for the long haul, fundamentally changed Russia or that has revealed its true ambitions. What does that mean for a longer campaign? The Economist recently wrote a story about the implications of a long war. There's a sense, I think, in which short wars are fought and perhaps won by the armies you have. Longer wars are fought by societies, economies, countries. Uh, and in that sense, there's a worry that Russia outmatches Ukraine on lots of these counts, the size of its economy, the size of its potential reserve of manpower, artillery pieces, stores of tanks, all of these things. How does Ukraine win a longer war? Are you seeing, for example, a sense of Ukraine beginning to use its Western weaponry in effective ways that appreciates you can't use rocket launches from the US and the UK in the way you would use Soviet rockets as a sort of area bombardment weapon because you haven't got as much ammunition? In the big sense, Ukraine is winning the long war. The war that Russia wanted was to take control of Ukraine. Ukraine will not fall under the Russian yoke. Ukraine has been strengthened as a nation. The announcement of its EU candidacy, the support that the West has given to Ukraine those are going to be enduring features. You then have a battle for a tactical piece of geography, and that is going to go on longer. And that is going to be a battle of who can establish themselves and support themselves and, and allow them to gain momentum. 
But even with that, I think we've got to be cautious of, is that a 2022 thing or 2023 thing? And then we have a here and now about the fight in the Donbass. And to your point, Shashank, about if we then come down to some of the, the military capabilities that are currently being fielded and how they've changed, I think what you've seen is a magnificent response by Ukraine in terms of the whole nation and their armed forces, and that allowed them to resist the, the attacks on their cities and the broader attack into their country. Russia then responded and has focused in the south and the east, and it's consolidated in the south, and the dynamic element is the battle in the east. Then what you've seen is an increase in the volume of equipment to Ukraine, and then you've also seen an increase in the quality of that equipment. And where we're at now is how does Ukraine actually embrace all that equipment and the quality, and to use that effectively, it has to turn the kit into capabilities. And a capability, if you take the artillery battle with precision munitions, involves your intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. It involves a command and control and a plan that embraces those sophisticated weapons in a different way to crude artillery and an attritional fight so that the rocket lands on this table and the significance of being able to be that accurate as opposed to crude artillery where actually you're lobbing shells at each other in quite a large area. And that qualitative piece I think is now going on in some of the kit to capability. Russia's advance is, as you reflect, slow and costly. But Russia did make territorial gains and it now controls the eastern Luhansk region. So I'm going to ask you to look at something a bit more sceptically than you might like to. What do you think the strengths of the Russian military operation have been to date? One strength was the ability to amass such a large force. We can then deliberate and analyze over what happened in their ambition to, to take the cities and take a larger part of Ukraine. Russia acknowledged that they were failing in that and they adjusted their tactics. I think you can then look at their control of the Black Sea and the way that they have denied that to Ukraine. And then they have an attritional ability that is allowing them to make these small tactical gains. But to your point, Anne, that somehow that is winning, I would dispute that. It seems to me, as an analyst, we've seesawed a little bit between saying in the first days of the conflict, it's all about javelins and anti-tank missiles and TB2 drones, to then saying, actually, it's all about heavy armor and artillery and old-fashioned conventional warfare. And we've leapt between these things. What are the lessons you have now pulled out on reflection about warfare? What's really important? And are you absolutely confident that you, as the British Armed Forces, would do better than the Russians in dealing with some of these new challenges of drones, of new types of top attack anti-tank missiles, of software-enabled AI-fueled targeting? Are you really confident you would do better than the Russians? So I'm absolutely confident that we would do better than the Russians. We would do better than the Russians on, on all kinds of levels. But the fundamental reason we would do better than the Russians is that we are in the world's largest and most powerful military alliance. And so if you're fighting with 29 other nations and with the sophistication that all of those collective nations bring, 
And the master that that is, three and a half million people in uniform. The Russians had mass too. But that's three and a half million people in uniform, even before Finland and Sweden have joined, then that is extraordinary. And then when you take the sophistication of how those modern Western nations fight, and you've seen some of that in the Gulf, that is a completely different order to what we're seeing with Russia in Ukraine. That was 30 years ago, and we haven't fought a state-on-state conflict as a country for 40 years. The Americans haven't faced one for even longer. We haven't had to deal with a contested air environment. We haven't had to look up and think about aerial threats in quite the same way the Russians have. So this is terra incognita for us as well, isn't it? Not really, because I think the insights that we're seeing and the way that Russia is fighting, and the comparison is against Russia, is that the Western nation's ability to take control of the air, I have supreme confidence in. And the reason why we're so much better than the Russians is the ability that we would have to take down a Ukrainian-level air defense system. We know that we can do that, and we can do that very quickly. Our ability in the air for dynamic targeting... And what I think has surprised some of us is the inability of Russia for dynamic targeting. So hitting moving targets, that's what dynamic targeting is. Yes, and and you don't have to do your targeting four or seven days beforehand. You're actually doing it in the air and you're adjusting. So I think on all of those aspects, that feels that we're in a strong position. And then I suppose the challenge is, well, go back to our integrated review. This is the British Review of Foreign Defence Policy conducted last year. Yes, and I think that was a significant one because it was more than just foreign and security policy. It embraced the UK leaving the EU and the desire for a strong prosperity agenda, the acknowledgement that we're in a technological age and therefore we need to embrace science and technology in a stronger way, and also other security challenges, whether that's health security or climate change security. So I think there's a strength to it in terms of how we approached it that way. It also was very clear in identifying Russia as the acute threat to the UK. And then it came out with some big things about the need to modernize. But it also stressed that the response to Russia is collective defense. That's what we've got in NATO. And I also think it emphasized the importance of being a nuclear nation or being part of a nuclear pact. And those are the things that keep us super safe and why we should have real confidence. Let's look at some of the practical consequences of the war in Ukraine and more broadly this shift of focus. The new chief of the general staff, Patrick Sanders, gave a speech recently in which he said the army would from now on have a singular focus, his words, to mobilise to meet today's threat and thereby prevent war in Europe. Where does that leave this idea of global Britain and indeed the aspirations to be part of a broader security compact. Someone told me when uh, when you were pitching for your present job, one of the, the reasons that you, that you came through that field was that you also talked a, a lot about South China Sea, you talked a lot about Asia, you're a, a Navy man by background. Unsurprisingly, you didn't only talk about Europe. So are these things in tension? No, I think that Patrick Sanders, he's taking charge of the army. He wants to instill his leadership of the army. He wants to speak to young soldiers and all the way through and give them an added sense of purpose and the very tenets of being in uniform, which applies to the Royal Navy, the Army and the Royal Air Force, of being ready for war. And that is a truism and it's a norm. I don't think anything has changed in the bigger aspect of 
the integrated review that focused on our responsibilities in the Euro-Atlantic. And then it also acknowledged this tilt to the Indo-Pacific and this strange word tilt, but probably accurate mm. to reflect that actually we do want to reach over there as well because of the importance of the Indo-Pacific in some of the security challenges there, but predominantly because of a prosperity agenda. Do you see a conflict there, Shashank, looking at it as our analyst? I think the challenge is that the capabilities you need for counter a large-scale continental land threat from Russia, particularly in the Baltic region and with the new NATO's focus, we've just come out of a NATO summit very recently, our intention in terms of the forces you need, the way they need to be postured, with those you need for sort of large-scale presence in other parts of the world, perhaps those you need for counterterrorism missions in the Middle East, in in sub-Saharan Africa, in in other places, um, the same forces can't be optimized for all of these tasks, can they? And I think when I spoke to ministers last year during the integrated review, they were quite honest about that. They said, we are picking a force that's going to be more about presence, more about peacetime, uh, consistent engagement. It's not going to be optimized for continental land warfare. But I think Patrick Sanders is saying, actually, we, we do need to think much harder about that even than we were last year. I think Patrick is speaking to the army. I don't think Patrick is saying UK defence needs to solely focus on the Euro-Atlantic and let's give up the direction by the government for the tilt to the Indo-Pacific. And by the way, it's only a tilt. So the army and navy may go in slightly diverging geographic directions. no, 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 I don't think so at all. I think you're seeing a continuation. So the navy will be strong within NATO, and that's dominated by the North Atlantic, and that's dominated by the requirement for our continuous at sea nuclear deterrent and to have the freedom of maneuver in the North Atlantic and to link that with the other NATO navies. I think you then see the same with the Air Force. And in both those cases, that allows you, if you're operating at that level in a qualitative sense, to operate around the world. I think it's the same with the Army. The Army has to have the ability to project force into Europe. That doesn't deny you from being able to project force around the world. And so I think this, this, this sort of digital either-or is too simple. And then when you add that you're part of this enormous construct called NATO, you're, you're actually playing a role within that. And the UK, at its best, probably provides some particular niche capabilities which have additional value. One thing that has changed is probably the speed at which spending commitments are are now bearing fruit, which I'm sure you will be happy about as someone who'd be advocating for higher defence spending to do what you want to do. £1.3 billion already spent in military support to Ukraine by Britain. Boris Johnson, Prime Minister, pledged another billion pounds. How would you take on the criticism that Britain is getting itself, both in spending and uh, in other material terms, into a leading role in a war that is going to get expensive, is dragging on? We don't know how long it is going to take. But the political pressure is going to rise around defence spending, isn't it? I think the UK government has been very clear in terms of its role with Ukraine. Then I think you have the clarity of the UK government with others of this hideous aggression of Russia invading another country and that we will be supportive of Ukraine, both in the short term and the long term. And therefore, I think, Anne, what goes with those 
policy positions mm. is you then have to match it with some resource. And I'm proud of the way that we as the military and the way the military instrument has been used alongside our diplomatic colleagues and economic colleagues and alongside our international partners. That does cost money. And the government's been really clear with firstly 1.3 billion, then here's another billion. But then you've got to go back a little bit further to our integrated review was accompanied by an extra 24 billion pounds. And that was additional money against the backdrop of an uncertain economic position in the middle of a pandemic. The Prime Minister made an announcement about the UK defence budget rising to 2.5% by 2030, and that's a 25% increase in our defence budget. So the usual complaint that senior military often have of aspirations not being met by resources, they feel a lot more in balance than they usually are. At the same time, there are plans to cut the British Army by around 10,000 troops. And that does come across as a bit of a, a mixed message. How can the armed forces get as much as they want to get out of this rise in defence spending if their numbers are being cut? I think we've been really clear that we want a more lethal and better deployable British Army, which is why the capital investment is over £41 billion. The aggregate of the capital investment going into the army is that of the Navy and the Air Force. That's an extraordinary commitment, and it reflects investment and a desire to have an even better army. And that investment you see starts to materialise in the next few years. That's how you modernise your army. That's how you have a much better army. And this notion of constantly looking at troop numbers and somehow that is the arbiter of lethality and deployability, is flawed. Now, obviously, there's, there are extremes to that, but I think we've been really clear about having a more modern, a more lethal, a better deployable army, and one that then can serve the government's needs and work alongside our partners, and that's the journey that we're on. I recently returned from a NATO summit in Madrid. This was possibly one of the most important summits the alliance has had in really a generation or so, and a lot of huge decisions, the, the accession of Finland and Sweden to the alliance, the beginning of that process, a huge increase in the number of high readiness forces in the alliance. And I thought perhaps the most interesting thing, which affects the UK as well, Admiral, is the conceptual change from having these tripwire forces, these battalions in Eastern Europe, whose job was really not to halt a Russian invasion, but to make sure it becomes an international problem dragging in everyone else, a shift from that to what they call forward defence. So having bigger brigade-sized formations, you know, three, four, five thousand strong on NATO's eastern front. Now, the Baltic states want more. They want full divisions. They want proper brigades. We're not sending a full brigade. We're sending part of one. We're going to keep some in the UK. We'll, we'll send it to Estonia when, when the time is right. How are you balancing this problem of, of the Baltic states wanting uh, huge, powerful armoured forces lining up in the Baltic right on Russia's border with the desire of countries like the UK, Germany saying, we appreciate that need, but we're going to keep a lot of these forces at home and only send them when necessary. How are you balancing that problem? So I think the NATO summit and I think at military chiefs level, we're balancing it by having an honest conversation and looking at all the threats and recognizing that, understandably, those nations on the eastern flank, they want more reassurance and they want more forces further forward. And that's what you're seeing. They also want to know that forces can flow forwards more quickly 
and you're seeing the readiness of NATO's forces come up, that to me is the right response. But then I also would say we have a responsibility to look at all the threats. The Russia that we see is not just about land forces, and its land forces are under pressure and are reducing in combat effectiveness. I heard Ben Wallace in Madrid, the Defence Secretary, say to me and some other reporters, the VDV, Russia's elite airborne forces, would be lucky to fit in a minibus, given how many casualties they've taken. That was the phrase he used uh, in terms of attrition suffered by Russia. Yes, so Russia's land forces have suffered some hideous losses and their combat effectiveness, you can have a debate whether it's reduced by 30 or 50%. But if you look beyond and you come back to those concerns about this post-Cold War era and the aggressive Russia that we face is also Russia's other capabilities. So their space, cyber, nuclear, underwater program, their long-range missiles, that's the responsibility, I think, for all of us is to protect Europe in this total sense, not just in one domain. I'm just trying to channel what someone who was sceptical or worried about this war might come up with as a sort of broad challenge to you, Admiral. And it would be that, look, this is obviously a conflict in which there is bad on one side, there's much more bad on the Russian side than than the invasion of Ukraine makes that very clear. But we are dealing here with a nuclear power and the fear of escalation and of a Russia, which, as you've laid out in some depth, getting into a situation where it is less and less good at what it thought it was good at in terms of waging war, and run by someone whose present state of mind and motivations are you know, still only have to be guessed at in the case of Vladimir Putin in this phase. Are you not concerned that you start to bring people closer and closer to the threshold of using nuclear weapons? Russia does not want a war with NATO. Russia does not want a nuclear war. And there are other mechanisms, Anne, in terms of how we assess whether or not we're on the path to some of those escalatory steps. And then we have the ability to respond to those. And 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 I think other mechanisms, I have to say, sounds like a big euphemism. Do you, well, no, we mean so, intelligence gathering? So so intelligence gathering and and ensuring that we have really careful monitoring. The communications that we have with Russia are not as strong and as clear as they were in the Cold War, but there are still ways that we can communicate with Russia, and Russia communicates with us as well. So yes, we should be responsible about the risk of escalation, but we shouldn't because those risks exist, think that suddenly we're going to spiral up that escalation ladder and things get out of control. And by the way, we should have the confidence that what we can bring to bear is so extraordinarily strong that that is our protection and defence for some of those escalatory risks. Admiral, I thought we'd end by reflecting on your career path because I think listeners would be interested, perhaps surprised to learn that before your very distinguished military career, you read law at university, you qualified as a barrister. I'm intrigued as to how that experience has helped your military career. How has it influenced your thinking as a military officer, as a commander as well? So I I was sponsored by university by the Navy, and I carried on that sponsorship whilst I was in the Navy and driving a small ship and doing my warfare courses to qualify as a barrister. I've got to always say I never I never practiced as a barrister, uh, and people will probably say well, that explains why he's so he's so long winded with his answers as well. <laughs> I think it's I think it's it's just the intellectual 
challenge and and what you learn, and particularly with law in terms of trying to understand dichotomies. And so can you understand both points of view? And that feels incredibly applicable when can you understand your enemy's point of view and can you maximize your own case as to why you're going to win? I think I'm lucky to have that background. Admiral Satoni Radkin, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you very much. As I said, it was a delight to be here. And thank you, Shashank, for coming along too. Thank you so much for letting me join in. And do let us know what you think. Does a protracted conflict favour Russia or Ukraine? And who is likely to be the biggest loser? Write to us at podcast.economist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. You can read The Economist's assessment of these questions on our website, as well as all of our coverage of the war as it enters its fifth month. Stay up to date by becoming a subscriber today. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.